Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Jason, you're having way too much fun back there in that booth. That was great. Good morning. Welcome to Community Alliance. Hopefully you've already received some information about us in our church. There's a lot of information in your bulletin, so make sure you read it very carefully so you won't miss out on a thing. The uh, pink flyer, something new we're doing here, is uh, one of the things we're doing is God's blessing us with great facilities. We want to use it as much as we can. And folks are coming in from all over the country, from what I understand, from a number of states for this particular debate. So if you can help us out or help out, we would appreciate that. Truth Project sign-up will be out there after this service. It wasn't before, but it will be afterwards. Safe family meeting was canceled last Tuesday night. We're hoping it's going to be this Tuesday night. Snow held us up last week, but those of you who signed up, that is coming up as well. Venison dinner is around the corner, and from what I understand, we still need a lot of hind quarters. So we don't want to do roadkill, so if you can help us out in that, we would appreciate that very, very much. And uh, if you have an old bassinet, sitting around the home somewhere that you're not using anymore because you're done with kids, but you still have it, I could use it next Sunday morning. Let me know. I don't need 12, I need one. But uh, if you still have one, let me know. James chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We were there last week. We began to unpack it as James has some pretty powerful things to say to those scattered throughout the world at that particular point. If you read Acts chapter 8, the church when God landed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3... They pretty much stayed together until Acts chapter 8 and the persecution arose and they began to find themselves scattered all throughout the area going through some really difficult occurrences. They're writing now back to James or at some point someone may have recontacted him and said, man, this is really tough. What do we do? And he begins to write back to them scattered all over the area and giving them some advice on a variety of issues. I love James because he's to the point. He deals with some tough issues. But he really does help them understand how to now do church, follow Christ, and the world they find themselves in. He's most likely writing to pockets of people, not necessarily individuals like you and I would write a letter, but most likely writing to pockets of people who had gathered together in local congregations, small as though they were, and they're trying to now understand how to relate to one another, how to bring people into the kingdom of God, how to share the truth that has really transformed their lives, if you read the book of Acts, you will see they were absolutely turned upside down by the gospel. So much so, by the time you get to chapter 17, they turned their world upside down. And now they're dealing with a variety of things, and James begins to write to them about some things that, now that you're a follower of Christ, ought to be evidence in your life. The first one we talked about last Sunday morning, and that is favoritism or prejudice. I pulled back beyond just simply the issue of someone walking into a church setting, one who has fine clothes and fine jewelry, to someone who has shabby clothes. We backed off beyond that a little bit and talked about how we look at people, not only as individuals, but as churches. Now, there are a lot of issues that we shared last Sunday morning that relate to us as individuals, how we look at people, how we treat others, how we treat those who are different than us. James, I think, is writing to churches, and one of the things that he addresses in this issue is how churches ought to respond to one another, how they ought to respond to one another in the family of God or when people come in, how we ought to respond out beyond these circles to those that we're, we're, we're connected to in some way or the other. Some churches do it really well. Some churches don't do it as well. Some churches have a reputation of 
taking really tough, tough stands on certain issues and, and making people feel uncomfortable and others don't take any stands at all. And James is trying to bring some balance, I believe, and, and we talked last Sunday morning pretty harshly about some of the issues that come upon us, even in our own community, as to how we look at people and how we look at those who are different than us, as if we're the model, as if we're the ones who have it right. And James says you need to, if you're a follower of Christ, when the glory of God has transformed your life, I want you to look at people with really open eyes and recognize their needs and who they are and how we can best bring them into the family of God. They'll be different than you, absolutely. They may not look like you. They may not uh, have your same belief system or value system. And, and so he, he's trying to bring them to a point of understanding how to connect to one another and how to bring about some real transformation that's going to change people from the inside out. He goes on in this section of Scripture last week in James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, and he talked about showing mercy and grace to those who walk into your fellowship who may be different than you. They may look different. They may dress different. They may have come from different backgrounds. They may bring in a lot of baggage. They may have had a great life. But he said, when they come into your fellowship, I don't want you to segment them or separate them and make some feel like they don't fit and others feel like you couldn't wait for them to show up. You're a follower of Christ. Don't do that. Allow them to come in and feel welcome and feel that they have a place and, and they fit, regardless of how they dress or regardless of their background, regardless of how they look or the color of their skin or the issues they face. Bring them in. He goes on and really picks up on a, on a same theme, talking about belief system, our, our value system. I, I'm really convinced that your beliefs will affect your behavior. What it is that you believe will affect how you act, and the depths of those beliefs will greatly determine your behavior. Let me give you some examples. If you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that this is absolute truth, then you'll be in it. If you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's the absolute truth, and you know that it's God communicating with your children, with his children, then you're going to be in it. It won't be, well, I didn't have time. I, I, I don't know the Bible like I should. If you really do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, His Word communicated to His children, then you're going to be in it. You're going to read it. If you really believe, honestly believe, that at the end of life, you and I will answer to God, that will determine your behavior. If you honestly believe that, that at the end of your life, you and I will stand before Almighty God and answer for the life that He has given us, that will affect your behavior. It has to. You cannot convince me that if you live whatever way you want to, that you're really fully convinced that you're going to stand before God and give an account of that behavior. But if you really do believe that you will stand before God, that I will stand before God, and give an account of the life that I've lived, what he's done, or what I've done with the life that he's given me, if it's 8 years old or 88 years old, what I have done with the life that he's given me, that will determine your behavior. It'll determine your lifestyle. If you really believe that people without Christ are lost, and if they die lost, they're lost forever, you'll share your faith, right? If you really believe that people without Christ are lost, and if they're lost and they die without Christ, they're lost forever, then you'll share your faith. Christianity is not a private thing. Oh, my faith is a private thing. No, it isn't. Well, my religion is a private. No, it's not. 
It was never intended to be. Your faith was intended to be lived out, which is what he is saying in this second chapter. James would say, your beliefs will automatically determine your behavior. Your faith in Christ has to affect your lifestyle. Your faith in Christ is lived from the inside out. Let me give you some examples. He said, let me tell you this. Chapter 2 of James, verse 14. You all there? Chapter 2, James 14. You got your Kindle, your smartphone, whatever that may be. I had three comments last Sunday morning about saying that, saying, you know what, I got one for Christmas. That was so cool. Now I can come to church. version, Y-O-U version, one of the best apps you'll find. And uh, it's got an enormous amount of, it's just a great Bible app for, uh, for your smartphone or iPad or whatever. Uh, Y-O-U version, Life Church TV, I think it is. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone have, claims to have faith but doesn't have deeds? And that kind of faith saved them? Suppose a brother or sister was without clothes or daily food, and one of you comes to them and says, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, and you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. Almost. Let me see it. What does it look like? Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. Matter of fact, they shudder. You foolish person, do you really want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now, we're going to deal with a very powerful section of Scripture this morning and next Sunday, so I want to tell you right up front. This, if I really believe, is as powerful as it is, as difficult sometimes it is for some to understand, once you fully come to a full understanding of this text, I honestly believe that it could change your life. Now, James is not saying here that you've got to prove your faith by doing good works or that doing good works is going to get you into heaven. It's not what he is saying. There's a lot of people that think that if I can do enough good works, I'll get into heaven or or they'll do good things to somehow get into good graces of God. How many of you know there's a lot of people in a lot of religions who do whatever they can to please the gods, right? You've heard that for centuries gone by. So much so that they'll sacrifice their children if they think that will please the gods. I want the gods to be happy with me. And so I'll do whatever's necessary if it's sacrificing my vegetables or it's sacrificing my children. I want the gods to be pleased with me. And so they'll do all these things and jump through all these hoops, hoping that the gods, wherever they may be, whoever they may be, are pleased. James is not saying that at all. The primary point of this passage of Scripture is that saving faith or living faith Both terms are synonymous. Saving faith or living faith, like any other living thing, produces something. In this case, living faith will always produce good works. That's what he is saying. James concludes that if there are no good works, then your faith is dead. If there really isn't evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ has transformed your life, I'm not sure if you have the life of Christ in you. Because if indeed the life of Christ is in you, it will come out of you. If I can't see your faith demonstrated in some tangible way, I'm not sure if it's there because as in any living thing, living faith has signs of life. Scripture talks a lot about different kinds of faith. Talks about sometimes even maybe what you and I would refer to as degrees of faith. How many times have you heard Jesus look at the disciples and say, oh, you have what? Little faith. Little faith needs strengthened. 
Little faith needs to grow. He's not talking about this here, though. He's talking about dead faith. Weak faith needs to be strengthened, and little faith needs to grow. Dead faith needs a resurrection. Some in this room may have wounded faith. Where, where somewhere along the way in your journey with God, there are some things that you didn't understand, and it, it really fr- it hurt, and you didn't quite get it, and it, you, you begin to maybe back off a little bit on your passion with Christ, and your faith has somehow, for some reason, been a little bit wounded. Got to believe that Mary and Martha, after Lazarus died, and sent word to Jesus, come, your, your, your be- one of your best friends is, is, is sick, and... And we need you. And, and Jesus didn't show up. He was already dead by the time Christ got there. Got to believe that Mary and Martha were a little bit disappointed. The faith they had in Christ that knowing he was the answer and the reason that, 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 that Martha and, and Mary were so close to him, knowing that he had the answers to life, I, I got to believe was a little bit shaken at this point. A little bit wounded. And wounded faith sometimes happens to all of us and wounded faith needs healed. Some may have shaky faith. I remember reading in Mark where, where one, one person was bringing his son to Christ to have him, ask him to heal him. And, and, and Jesus said, how do you know I've got the answer? He said, I know you do. And had that conversation. And he said, I, I really do believe. Please help my unbelief. Not as strong as it needs to be. I, I really do believe that you have the answers, but it's not as strong as I, I wanted to believe. So I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes wounded faith needs a healing and Shaky faith needs stability. But what do you do with dead faith? What do you do with dead faith? To be honest with you, there's only two, maybe to me, there's only two choices. You either bury it or you put life back into it. You got something dead in your house, you're probably going to do one of those two things. You're going to hope it comes back to life. You're going to what? Bury it. Some people have a hard time now with this section of Scripture. I see, the whole idea of faith and works and how they fit together seems inconsistent with the gospel of grace. Martin Luther, the great, Refor- uh, great reformer, had a hard time with James's gospel, especially this section of Scripture. He saw it inconsistent with the gospel of salvation that is by grace and grace alone. Now, he came out of a system of legalism where they tried to earn their salvation, and when he embraced Jesus and found out that it was by grace and grace alone, it transformed his life. So as he began to read this section of Scripture, it made him a little uncomfortable. He resonated with Paul. When Paul talked in Romans 3 about we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Martin Luther loved that verse. Romans 3, when he says no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin, but it's in grace alone. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we've done, because of his mercy. Scripture like that, that are, are the ones that set him free, and he loved those pieces of Scripture. He loved the book of Romans. Had a hard time with James. He felt that James and Paul were somehow contradicting one another, but what you need to understand is they weren't. You see, James and Paul were defending the exact same truth from two different enemies. Paul was fighting the enemy of legalism. That by your good works, you can earn salvation. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, you're in. Now, the bad news is, if that's indeed your theology, two things at least I know are going to happen. Third one I'll talk about in a minute. But one is, you're going to wear yourself out. 
And the second is, you'll never, ever know for sure if your works are good enough. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. Bad news is all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the bad news even gets worse in Romans 6, 23. It says the wages of that sin is death. Good news, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. James is battling another enemy. The mind said that if salvation is by grace alone and I don't have to do anything to get it, once I have it, then it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do. Paul is saying, you need to understand that it's by grace. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to try and strive and wrestle and work. To get salvation, it's a free gift from God on the cross of Calvary. James is saying, look, there's a lot of people who get it and understand that, but sadly they somehow feel that after they receive salvation, as long as I have it, it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do. And James is saying, yes, it does. It really does because what you do reveals whether or not you have living faith. For living faith, by virtue of what it is, will always produce life. The most natural evidence of living faith is what I see. The most natural indicator of life in you is life that comes from you. The most natural indicator of life in you is that there is life coming from you. You may have seen this illustration before, I'm not sure. Somewhere along the way, one of the best... Wow, this heavy... Where's my stage crew? <laughs> Ken, come here a minute. Open that up, brother. All right, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> you all know we're going to die, right? Is that a surprise to anybody? Nobody's surprised by that? We're all going to die. Tyson, the, the guy that, Tyson Chicken guy, died a couple of weeks ago of cancer. One of the richest men on the planet. Bought out Purdue Chicken and became incredibly wealthy. Died like all of us. Doesn't matter how much wealth you have, doesn't matter how poor you are. It's the one leveling field of life. We're all going to die. When you die, now I'm, I don't want to put you in a bad spot or an awkward spot, so don't raise your hand. When you die, how many of you want to go to heaven? Oh, you're going to answer anyhow? I mean, when you die, don't you want to go to heaven? Is there anybody in here who says, nah, not really. Thanks for the offer, I'd just soon go to hell. Now, you do know there's a lot of people that live that way. When you die, I've got to believe not a one of us in here says, you know what, if those are the two options, and by the way, they are, I want heaven. All right, now this is the problem. We've seen this before. I'm sure. All right? Here's you and me. I know, it's bad. It's the best I got on a quick notice here this morning. Over here is God in heaven. I'm not going to draw God. I love those little kids, you know, when they say, draw something really good, I'm drawing God. Well, nobody knows what he looks like. Well, they will when I'm done. I've heard those illustrations, but we don't know exactly what he looks like. All the scripture gives us a lot of good deal, a lot of good understanding, but here's you and here's God, okay? You're, you're a sinner. Do you know that? Anybody in here that doubts that? 
In case you do, ask the person next to you. or next, They'll verify that fact. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, God is perfect. You're not. God is. Right? And when I die, I want on God's side. When I die, I want to go to heaven. Not a person in here that would doubt that. The problem is there's this huge gulf called sin, and because of it, Scripture very clearly tells me that I can't get there. Because of this huge gap called sin, I so desperately want to get to heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die. But sin keeps me from getting there. So, how do I get there? I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to try as hard as I can. I've had this conversation with hundreds of people when I say to them, when you die, don't you want to go to heaven? All of them have said yes. Indeed, you're standing before God's throne. And he said, why should I let you in? What is your answer? Almost all of them say, I tried really hard. I I went to church. I didn't sin. Yeah, God's sitting there going, okay, well, I... Let me look at, you know, all kinds of things. But they'll try as hard as they can. I went to church. I read my Bible. They'll give me all kinds of reasons. I kept the Ten Commandments, and on and on the list went. The problem is two things. One, you are going to wear yourself out. And secondly, how on earth do you know that if any of those things, which Scripture very clearly tells us don't, how will you know at some point that at least you've done enough of those things to get you in? You want to wait till you die to find out for sure? You want to wait till it's all set, but I hope I've done enough. You want to wait till you die? No. None of those are going to get you in. Scripture very clearly paints that picture over and over again. But I'm not, I can't tell you the amount of people who try to do that. I want to earn my, I want to get in, I want to do it as much as I can, I work as hard as I possibly can. I want to get into the kingdom. When I die, I want to go to heaven. The problem is, no matter how hard you try, you can't get there on your own. There's only one way to heaven, and that is the bridge that Jesus Christ built on the cross of Calvary. There's no other access into the kingdom of God but through Christ. He's the only way in. Paul and James would both agree with this diagram. Paul would basically say, you've got to understand that it's by grace that you're saved. Not of yourselves, not work. There's no human effort that you can possibly manufacture up enough to validate all of your sin or negate all of your sin to make it necessary for God who is perfect to invite you into his perfect kingdom. There's no way. I've provided a way. I've thought about it since the beginning of time. Jesus and the Son of God, the, the Spirit of God, and I have planned this from the beginning of time before the foundation of the world that Christ would come and rescue and redeem you and set you free. And he'd be the only way. And when you stand before that door and he says, why should I let you in? (laughs) Based on me, there's no reason. But at some point in my life, I embraced Christ as a child of God. In 1965, in March, I bowed by my bed at my my mother and dad's house. And I invited Jesus Christ into my life. And I knew that no matter what I tried or how I tried, I couldn't get there. Because of that relationship with Christ, I know. I am absolutely no you're going to let me in. Paul would agree with that. So would James. James's premise is this. Once you understand this, 
that it's by grace and grace alone and that Christ has invite, you've invited Christ into your life, once you understand this, one of the main evidences of the fact that this really did take place in your life, that you just didn't raise your hand, sign a card, say a prayer, and hope you're in, one of the greatest, most vivid, visible evidences of the fact that this really did take place in your life, where you recognize that it wasn't by your good works, that it was solely based on the cross of Calvary. Once you understand that, the natural outcome of that, the most visible evidence of that, is what you do or how you live. Because you understand now that it wasn't by your good works that got you in. It was the grace of Jesus Christ. And because of the grace of Jesus Christ, I want to serve him with every fiber of my being. I want to live with him for all I've got. You were created in Christ Jesus, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians, that you cannot get in by your good works. You were created to do this. You were created to do good works. That's why he made us. That's why he formed us. That's why he called us. That's why he died for us. That's what he sends us, sends us to do from this point on. James is saying this. Faith without some visible evidence that this really did take place in your life is dead. It's dead. To be honest with you, I don't even know that you have it. There's no some visible evidence of the fact that transformation really did take place in your life. I don't know that you had it because I'm telling you, every living thing I've ever been around has some signs of life. And if there are no signs of life, it has to be that. And it's not about your words. I believe in God. Even the demons do that. Matter of fact, they could show, every demon in the world could sign most churches' statement of faith. They believe all of that. Matter of fact, they believe it more than some of the people who have already signed it. And it creates fear in them because they recognize the holy God that I'm going to stand before. And so now that I've embraced Christ as my Savior, I want to live for Him with everything of God. James is saying faith without some signs of life is dead. You go to a morgue, you don't have to be a doctor to recognize that body is dead. I mean, if you weren't really sure, you could hook up some monitors to it and it would verify the fact that that body is dead. But how do you tell when it comes to determining whether or not someone is spiritually dead? I mean, you can tell when they're physically dead, but how do you tell when they're spiritually dead? Physical, physically dead people don't talk. If they did, you wouldn't stay in that morgue very long. <laughs> but spiritually dead people do. Because you see the words that say, hey, I said, I have said, I have done. I, I think James, and we're going to talk about it more next week, <clears throat> James is going to give us what I think are three clues to being able to determine whether or not someone is physically, spiritually dead or not. Three clues. Empty words, phony compassion, and shallow convictions. Empty words to me are... Are, are void of that which life produces. What you do is a far clearer indicator of what you believe than what you say you believe. What you do, the life that you live, and how that you live for Christ, and how you live for Christ, and what you do, to me are a far, uh, to James, are a far clearer indicator of what you believe than what you say you believe. Paul would say the same thing. Titus 1, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They claim to know Him, but they're detestable, disobedient, and don't do anything good. That's why he says here, it, it's, if, if it's all words and no evidence, I don't know that transformation really took place in your life. There's no visible evidence 
of the fact that transformation has taken place? I'm not sure if it did. The second indicator is phony compassion. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and, and, and you notice that, and you don't do anything about it. He's not talking about you have to save the world or take on all the problems of the world. It's being aware of those around you. Maybe those you have relationships with. James is confronting the difference between saying and doing. Saying you care without doing anything, without having some sort of behavior that indicates that you do, really is useless. Just saying you're concerned or saying there's something about it that, that, that hurts or that makes you weep or makes you want to respond, just saying you feel bad. James is saying, that's just, that's phony compassion. Brendan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says, the Christian life's not an abstraction by those who say they believe what you think you want to believe. Christian life is a concrete, visible, noticeable way of living. In this world, by daily choices consistent with your inner faith. Commitment is not visible. Commitment that is not visible in some ways is an illusion. Jesus was really impatient with that. When speaking about faith is not a, when speaking about faith is not associated with acting it out or acting from faith, then pious thoughts become an adequate substitute for washing dirty feet. Third indicator, shallow conviction. Someone will say, I have faith. You have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, good works can be done by people without the life of God in them. I've seen that a lot. Non-believers can do a lot of wonderful things. Sometimes non-believers do a lot of wonderful things that believers don't seem to do. What James is saying here is that you cannot claim that you have faith with God or faith in God, or you cannot claim that you have the life of God within you without it coming from you. That's just one of the clearest indicators. Not that you have to prove anything. You don't do it for that. If you do it for that sake, you've, you've missed the whole point. What he is saying, it's just a natural outflow of my relationship with God. It is a natural outcome of my relationship with God. Saying it isn't enough, even if you say you believe it. Because even the demons believe that. Matter of fact, it makes them fear. They're sometimes more aware of the fact that all will answer to God, Jesus would say, than some of us do. Genuine, living faith always is from the inside out. It always displays itself. Weak faith needs strength. Shallow faith needs to grow. Shaky faith needs stability. Dead faith needs life put in it or you will die without any faith. And believe me, you do not want to die without faith. Dead faith needs life put back into it, or you'll die without any faith. And believe me, you do not want to die without faith. Because that's the only way in. There's no other way but faith in Christ. And James would say one of the clearest evidences of the fact that this took place is how you live your life. Because I'm telling you, it changes you. It changes you. And it makes you want to do whatever you can to change those around you and let them see what's transformed your life. It's visible. Religion is not a secret thing. It is not something we keep to ourselves. It's not something that I do within the privacy of my own home. 
My faith in Christ is obvious and evident. And if it isn't, I've got to ask you, are you sure? Are you sure that you even have faith? Let's pray. Father, again, this is a profoundly powerful truth. And I ask, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you will help us to clearly understand where we are in our relationship with you. All kinds of ways that we'll flesh this out next week, all kinds of visible ways that we'll, we'll get it and understand it. But I just ask right now in the name of Jesus that you will look down deep inside all of us. Whether we have shaky faith, weak faith, wounded faith is, is not the issue today. But if we're really, honestly, any of us in this room, Father, aren't sure, would you, by the power of your Spirit, speak now? Because in a world that's really unsure and unstable, that's the one thing I want to be sure about. Is that my faith in Christ is solid and founded on the rock of the cross.